Good evening and welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. We are your co-hosts, Gregory Robinson and Gavin Telemetti. And today we are joined by Rebecca Doyle. And Rebecca, you're in geography, right? I am in geography. What, uh, what made you decide to go into geography? <laughs> well, I wanted to study lakes and I wanted to work on something that didn't have a lot of chemistry in it because I really hated chemistry. And so I went to my supervisor, uh, my current supervisor, Katrina Moser, who is in geography. Uh, and at the time I was working on my undergraduate honors thesis. And I asked her if I could, um, you know, join her lab. And she said that I could. And so I started working in geography then. Uh, before that, I was in environmental science. And then through the course of time, I also became co-supervised by a prof in earth sciences. So now I'm sort of working in both departments. Okay. So you did your undergrad here then? I did, yeah. yeah. I've been here for, I think, nine years. Wow. Ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you ever regret that? Maybe think, oh, I wish I was going somewhere else, doing something The only different? thing that I am concerned about is that some people say that if you do all three degrees, even though I, I upgraded from a master's uh, in one institution, it's it's career suicide. Yeah. So I do I do get concerned about that, but I never regret working in the labs that I'm working in now because I think I have a really great situation. I never really understood why they think it's really bad to stay at the same institution because at the end of the day, doesn't it all come down to what work you're doing? Because yeah. then anywhere else could have been maybe something that's either not as interesting or not as applicable. Yeah. I think they want you to like switch so you're not just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I think like maybe going to a different lab would be helpful, but like having to go to a different university seems a little excessive. But who knows? That's yeah. true. So what is it about lakes that you particularly look at? So I look at the chemistry of lake sediments. Basically sediments. Whoa, whoa, whoa. chemistry? So yeah, you were yeah. <laughs> you kind of hit a wall there with the <laughs> not liking chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it turns out, um, I, I don't know, I, I work on isotopes, which are, uh, I work on stable isotopes. So there's actually not a lot of reactions involved. So I always think of it in my head as like chemistry for dumb people, even though <laughs> it's not really. <laughs> it's just that it's it's uh, not what you would think of as chemistry. It's almost more like physics. But um, to get back to your question, uh, lakes, they deposit sediments year by year so that we can establish a chronology from the uh lake sediments and when we analyze different aspects of the sediment like the chemistry or uh, look at the different fossils inside then we can figure out how environments have changed over time and I thought that was really cool so I wanted to study lakes because I wanted to access this archive um, in the same way that you know someone would want to read a history book and find out how uh, events have happened over time. So what particular, you said stable isotopes. Uh, What do you mean by a stable isotope? So uh, I guess first, uh, isotopes are atoms with the same number of protons, but different numbers of neutrons. So what that means is that they have the same chemical properties, but they are different masses. So they weigh different um, amounts. And there's two main types of isotopes. There's uh, stable isotopes, which don't break down, and or at least don't break down over really long timescales, um, or sorry, over really short timescales. And there's also radioactive isotopes, which most people are more familiar with, like um, uranium-235, which uh, we always 
where we use in uh, nuclear reactors. So I look at stable isotopes, which don't break down and are naturally found in the environment. And what's cool about stable isotopes is that if you look at the ratio of the sort of lighter, more common isotopes to the heavier, rarer isotopes, you can figure out how a lot of natural processes work. And um, one example of that is we can figure out how many plants and algae were living in a lake over time by looking at the stable isotope ratios of carbon. Okay. And uh, you would look at, I'm guessing carbon would be one of the isotopes you would look at. Are there any others you would also try to get more information from? Yeah. So people focus on what's called the light isotopes. Um, almost, this is another reason why <laughs> it's weird that it's, it's a field in chemistry, because pretty much almost everyone only looks at oxygen, hydrogen, uh, sulfur, carbon, nitrogen, and maybe a little bit of like calcium. And that's like the whole field, even though it's, it's starting to branch out more into um, other elements. So in addition to carbon, I look at nitrogen, which is uh, found, for instance, in proteins. And I also look at oxygen and carbon, which are found in, sorry, uh, carbon from inorganic materials, which are found in like shells, um, in the calcium carbonate in shells. And I also look at hydrogen, which is found in, um, for instance, cellulose, which is uh, the backbone of, of plants. So what is it with the um, isotope data that you're trying to find just to see like how they change over time? Or is there something else that you want to get from this data? So there are a few different things that we look for. One thing that we can figure out is how wet or dry the climate is over time. We can figure this out by looking at the oxygen and hydrogen isotopes. We can also look at how many living things were living in a lake over time. And we can also say something about what kinds of plants and algae contributed to the sediment. We can also figure out how the lake uh, was how well connected it was to other water bodies or whether it was sort of uh, confined. And all of these things not only give us clues about the lake themselves, but tell us about how the regional climate has changed. Uh, so if we're looking at a lake in Ontario, we might be able to figure out how warm or cold the region was over a particular interval, usually less than 10,000 years. And also we can figure out a lot about how the kind of nutrient level of that lake has changed. I understand the whole idea of isotopes and using like carbon and nitrogen, but when you say you're looking at these isotopes and then you actually see these, you can see these changes, how do you go from the isotopes to seeing those changes? Like what are you actually looking at there? Yeah, so what we're looking at is the ratio of the heavy to light isotopes. And basically, we know that certain processes can change this ratio. One example is that if you have a lot of uh, photosynthetic organisms, so organisms that are like plants or um, algae that use the sun's energy to create uh, glucose, these organisms really like to take up the light isotopes because uh, it's really easy to break the bond of a lighter isotope than it is of their heavier counterparts. And so we know that in a water body, if there's a lot more algae or a lot more plants, then the ratio of heavy to light uh, carbon 
will change depending on how many how many organisms are photosynthesizing at one time. That's one example. And another example is, um, for instance, if you have uh, a lake that is uh, in a really dry area, and so there's a lot of evaporation, the lighter isotopes will preferentially escape into the vapor phase because they're lighter. Yeah. And so the lake will become um, more filled with the heavy isotopes, and that will change the ratio of oxygen that we see in the shells. Okay. So, like, if you were just to be given some data that contained, like, the abundancy of, like, different isotopes, and you're not really told where it's coming from, could you still be able to do the same analysis? Or do you have to actually know where it's coming from? I think it's really important to know where it's coming from because it, as easy as, you know, I'm, I'm sort of make it sound by just giving these explanations, there's a lot of factors that can interfere with the measurement. Like, for instance, w one problem that we run into a lot is whether these signals break down over time. So if you're looking at 10,000-year-old mud, is that mud really the same as it was at the top of the sediment when it was originally deposited? So knowing how old... Um, the material is that you're analyzing and knowing about the context of the location is very important, in my opinion. Okay, so where where exactly are you looking at and at what time point are you looking at this, this mud? So I'm studying lake sediments that are uh, they're a thousand years old to present. So that's actually pretty recent in terms of the field. A lot of people look at sediments that are about 10,000 years to present. That's roughly, well, maybe a little older than that is uh, where the last, um, the, the glaciers uncovered this area. And so looking at a thousand year time scale is really neat because it lets you look at a time before uh, European settlement. Uh, so that can help us to establish more of a baseline for how the lake kind of quote unquote, naturally varied over time. And then against that backdrop, we can compare the more recent changes that are usually caused by uh, European settlement, particularly farming and uh, land clearance. And uh, are there particular lakes you like to focus at, or do you like to sample like numerous different lakes just to get a good feel? So it kind of depends on the question you're asking. A lot of people actually just focus on one lake. But in my project, I'm looking at two um, kind of groups of sites. One is in southwestern Ontario in, uh, well, I guess southern Ontario in, in around Peterborough. And then the other group of sites is in the Uinta Mountains in Utah, up on uh, an east-west trending mountain range. And what's interesting about looking at these two sites is that I can compare sort of these really nutrient-poor lakes to the nutrient-rich, warm, temperate lakes in Ontario. Hmm. Do you actually get to go there then? Yes, I've gone to the Uintas three times, I think, and I've been to Berry Lake in uh, near Peterborough multiple times. And this is to collect the sediment, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and not just the sediment, but we also collect a lot of materials from around the lake to get an idea of what might go in the lake and contribute to the sediment. Okay. So a lot of uh, collecting plants, water samples, uh, sediment samples. How do you collect the sediment? We go out in boats and we have uh, what's called a, a quarter or a coring device. And what it is, is it's basically like a clear plastic tube and on the top of it is a weight. And the kind of core we usually use, it's called a gravity core. Uh, it has a rope on it. So we just row to the center of the lake, throw this device off the edge and hold onto the rope and then we lower it down. And that plastic tube starts to penetrate the sediment. And once we feel that it's gotten to um, 
basically the tube is fully submerged in the sediment. Then we throw down what's called a messenger, which is a heavy weight that uh, triggers a mechanism which causes the lid to snap down on the top of the tube, and that creates a vacuum so that when we pull out the tube, it is all of the sediment is not only in the tube, but it's still preserved in its original layers, which is really important when we try to establish a chronology with that sediment. So as a part of grad school, you get to go to lakes, go on boats in the middle of the summer, presumably, right? Usually. This is, this is a pretty good advertisement for grad school. So if anybody's interested, they can join geography or geology. But uh, I think it's really cool because compared to other people's research, you're just sitting in the lab all the time and you don't actually get out to the field. So it's really nice to see that there's that, that balance, right? Hey. Yeah, I, can, I can definitely back that up from geology. It's always field work is a vital part for most research. And yeah. the bonus from that is you just get to travel to, even if it's local, you still get to go outside and get actual context to where yeah. these samples are getting from instead of just being handed a box saying, like, can you run this analysis, please? Yeah. But it's uh, much easier. I don't know if you find it a lot easier since you know where you, it's all coming from and what's actually in this environment. If you see certain patterns or certain data points, you think, like, that might explain be explained by maybe this dumping of this material or this particular vegetation that might be causing that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it's super important to go to your site, and that's my supervisors are super keen on this as well, which is why I've gone so many times. And I like there's so many things that I wouldn't have thought to, um, so many questions I wouldn't have thought to ask if it weren't for actually going to the site. One in particular that comes to mind is the last time I went to our lake in southwestern Ontario, we saw that there was dead trees all around the perimeter of the lake. And I was swimming mm. in the lake at the time. And I was, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, the lake level must have been a lot higher in the past or else there wouldn't be all these dead trees in the lake. And it, and it turns out it was. And we could sort of see this in our later um, investigations. So it's, it's pretty neat to actually get to go there and take a look. And so this, this really helps because then you're actually, you're going there and you're getting that context that you need mm-hmm. sort of to understand what's going on there with the isotopes, essentially, from what we were saying earlier. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Hmm. That's really cool. So what, what's your, like, what's your big find if you have one? I do. I'm, I'm sort of like under a code of show silence. Show off. Show off right now. Oh, you can't. Well, <laughs> okay. okay. I'm, I'm, presenting, <laughs> I'm presenting a paper in a few months and I have to have my, uh, I have to have the paper like submitted to the journal before I yeah. present it. And right now, uh, <laughs> I'm not supposed to talk too much yeah, about okay. it, but yeah. I feel like a celebrity. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can talk about... Um, You're a rock superstar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I found is that uh, in this particular lake that we're looking at, we have a really strong drought signal. And the drought signal has been interpreted in a bunch of different ways in different papers and different lakes all around the region. And so we think that we might be able to explain some of the patterns um, that that others have interpreted as, as human activity, as, as a drought signal. And I always like thinking about how droughts and uh, really wet periods affect civilization. Um, it's crazy looking at thousand-year-old cores because even though it, it feels really young to me, you can 
fit so much of human civilization in like a thousand year period. And one of the signals that we see in our court is the Little Ice Age, which is a period from about 1450 AD to about uh, 1850. And this was a period where you had uh, the proliferation of slime molds on potatoes in Ireland, which led my ancestors to come from Ireland to, um, uh, to Canada, to Newfoundland. And it's just wild to think that these large-scale changes that affected the whole world can be seen in this little sediment core that I'm studying. Hmm. The mini ice age. Little ice age. Little, little, <laughs> little ice, ice age. age. It wasn't little. really an ice age. It was just a cool period. Okay. Is that like the scientific term, little it ice is. age? Oh, really? okay. It is. Yeah. Right. It's a period when uh, actually like the Vikings had to leave Greenland because okay. it became too cold. And so um, there was a lot of like raiding as a result of um, them having to leave I quite like that little ice age can go right next to Snowball Earth, which is yes, just yes. A, it's a beautiful way to make some people think like, oh, so what? The world's covered in ice. It's like, no, the world's covered in ice. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're a slush ball earth believer and you think the world was actually slushy. <laughs> oh, that's a disgusting world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like that outside right now. I don't think I really want it to be like that. <laughs> Or, or last week. Last week, Tuesday. Ooh. Let's <laughs> not talk about that. <laughs> it's a horrible day. Uh, but this is going a little bit back because I want to actually quickly ask, um, when you get the cores, how do you get the sediments out? Do you have to lay the core down to let and let it harden first, or do you put them in and separate them individually? Yeah, so there's actually a few ways to do this. And when it's really cold um, and you take cores in the wintertime, sometimes you can actually just push the sediment out with what's called an extruder. Um, and you're just pushing it out of the tube and you wrap it in tinfoil and you're good to go. Um, but most often what we do in our lab, because uh, we do most of our sampling in the summer on really um, kind of soupy lakes, is we take the tube out of the lake and then we mount it on what's uh, basically a platform. and we push the sediment out interval by interval. We usually uh, push up at half centimeter intervals and the sediment is pushed out of the top. And then as it's coming up, we scrape it off into bags. And then we label on the bag where in the core the sediment um, was sampled. And then at the end, we have all of our sediment in regular intervals in these bags and we put them in a cooler and, and usually transport them immediately to the fridge. How big are these bags then? Like if it's a half centimeter, what's like the, the diameter of the core? Um, the, I know, I know, it's weird, I know the volume of the core off by heart. I can't, I can't think of the diameter. It's probably like a it's five, like five centimeter-ish. Um, okay. Not very so big So it's not at very all. big at all. Okay. No. Um, and then our bags are very small, um, maybe like a half of your typical sandwich bag size um, we have special bags uh, for them so so they don't take up very much space at all but again it sort of depends on what core you're using some people have really big t custom-made tubes for doing um, collection of more uh, sediments then hmm. after you have these bags you're then looking at the radioisotopes so how exactly do you look at the radioisotopes so we we actually send off the radioisotopes or send off the sediments for radioisotope analysis um, for our age depth model and then for the stable isotopes we do all that analysis in-house and in our lab we do it we're trained on every analysis that we have to do um, so uh, I do a variety of different analyses, but usually what it involves is just taking your sediment, putting it into the freeze dryer, freezing, freeze drying it, um, so it becomes 
dry but doesn't have to heat up. And then we grind it uh, using either a mortar and pestle or uh, a little small, We call it, it's called a wiggle bug. It's, it just wiggles your sample back and forth really fast until it kind of breaks down. And then we weigh it into teeny, 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 teeny tin capsules. Uh, we weigh out usually about um, like a, about 0.4 milligrams. So about, I don't know, it feels like a, a quarter of a grain of rice, like nothing. <laughs> and then we put those uh, little tin capsules with our sample into a machine which uh, combusts them with a flame and then analyzes their stabilized isotope ratios. So it's crazy. Wow. Um, that's sort of why we don't need a lot of sediment because a lot of our analyses are very, 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 very small. I'm guessing the process, uh, I d I've never done the process myself, but I'm guessing it must be like one being quite a while just to get the sample the size you need it. And I'm guessing there's even further steps just to slowly make sure it's broken down right so you only get that isotope. And I'd imagine it's like, hours in the lab maybe doing like one process over and over again until you get it just right oh that's why i don't that's why i don't have all these papers out for my postdoc <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it and that's the fast process that's the fast one yeah another kind of more complex analysis that i do is i actually extract certain compounds from the sediment and then from that extraction we get this clear kind of an oil and then we analyze those stable, the stable isotopes of just the oil. And that process to get about four of them, four samples, uh, can take about uh, a week if I'm like oh, really, wow. really Ooh. hustling. And do you sometimes, uh, when you extract like what material you're getting those isotopes from, and if it's a material you don't really know, do you try to identify it in case it gives a unique isotope signal? And if you do, is there a particular technique that you use? <laughs> so, I. Uh, I do try to identify unknown compounds. Um, I think everyone that I work with thinks I'm slightly crazy for doing this <laughs> because I'm doing I'm I'm just supposed to be working on one compound uh, called alkanes, uh, and alkanes, which are just all they are is just carbon with hydrogen stuck to them. So we look at it because it's a really um, it, it's not a very reactive compound. It just sort of sits in the sediment and it doesn't break down. And it's also produced by bacteria, plants algae, like lots of things that are always in the like. So it's a very ubiquitous compound. It's usually the most ubiquitous um, type of um, hydrocarbon in the sediments. And it's neat because since it has carbon and hydrogen, we could look at the carbon and hydrogen isotopes. And that can tell us about how lake level has changed over time, which is sort of a way of getting at how uh, dry the environment is or how wet the environment is. And it can also tell us about how uh, many living things are living in the lake, which can tell us about like uh, how uh, nutrient-filled the lake was at any given time. Hmm. That's really interesting. So now that we know actually how you look at this, have you noticed, because we hear a lot about climate change, have you noticed a lot have, has changed in the last 1,000 years? So I really expected I would. In my lake, it, weirdly, there's like it's barely any change. Really? It's a very, very stable lake in the last, like, say, 200 years. But I think that's because the lake experienced some dramatic changes in the past, um, like this drought period that I mentioned. In most lakes that um, you look at, they do show usually uh, um, one thing that's common is like a increase in the. Um, oh, there is there is actually one thing. Yeah, there is one uh, signal that could be related to climate change in my lake, and that is when 
fossil fuel burning started. Yeah. Um, because fossil fuel burning burns stuff that's really, really, really old, it has a different carbon isotope signature than stuff that is modern. And there's so much fossil fuel burning that it's actually changed the global carbon isotope ratio of all of the plants and all of the algae everywhere. And so what we no have way. to do is we have to correct for this in the last like mm -hmm. 150 years. And that's called uh, Seuss correction because the guy who came up with it was named Seuss. And so we have to Seuss correct all of our data to basically account for this depletion due to fossil fuels. And it's something that is so standard that I kind of forget about it. But it, it also depleted all of the um, radiocarbon as well. So when you're doing any kind of radiocarbon dating, you need to take into account this depletion due to fossil fuels. And that just gives you an idea of how ubiquitous fossil fuel burning is and how much it has changed the environment. No way. And um, I'm guessing, because as you said, that wasn't really like a huge change just looking at these lakes. But mm -hmm. I'd imagine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that one lake probably can't represent the entire climate change of the whole world because there's, there's different processes going on everywhere. Absolutely. And one thing about lakes is that there's obviously different sizes of lakes. So a lot of people in this area look at the Great Lakes because they're so large. They uh, kind of integrate a climate signal from a really large area, like say around Ontario. Whereas the lake I'm looking at is so small. It's, it's, it's basically a pond. <laughs> Could you swim from one side to the other? Yeah, yeah, I, okay. I think I could. <laughs> I've had this debate with people, <laughs> and I've, I've almost done it uh, just <laughs> to prove my point. But anyway, um, <laughs> it will record a very localized signal. So even if overall the climate is warming, on the ground level, like on a local level, it's not really well understood how um, the climate will exactly change. And so uh, one thing that uh, we're interested in when we look at these uh, small lakes is to figure out like, okay, we know the world warmed um, during what's called the medieval warm period, which was a, well, it was a period of warmth. Uh, but how did that affect just Peterborough or just London, Ontario? And it can, uh, these, these sort of large scale global warming events can actually manifest in different ways. And that's one of the reasons why we stopped saying cli climate or global warming and started saying climate change, because just because the climate is warming overall doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have really, really high warming everywhere. In fact, you might have um, a lot of cooling somewhere uh, because there's just more temperature extremes. Okay. You can't say global warming isn't actually a thing from your results. It's a thing. Oh, it's definitely a thing. Okay. It's definitely a thing. All right. Sorry. That's what I was getting worried about. I didn't mean to. Uh, it just... Um, it just means that using the particular tool that I'm using to look at climate, yeah. I don't see it in my particular lake. Yeah. No way. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Rebecca. It's been a pleasure to have you here. I think I have personally learned a lot. I don't know about you, Gavin. But oh, no, I've definitely learned a lot. This is like, yeah. even though I'm in earth science, it's still way out of my yeah. um, expertise. So thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. This is GradCast, your official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students. If you're interested in joining to become a host, a producer, to join our committee, you can go to gradcast.ca or send us an email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Uh, you can find our podcasts on 94.9 CHRW every Tuesday at 6 p.m. It's also on Spotify, Podbean, iTunes. You can follow us on social media at gradcastradio on Twitter and on Instagram. Thank you for listening and have a great night. 
The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.